afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rock. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this very special issue, Professor Richard Muller will join us to tell us about the technical aspects of the war in Iraq. Coming right up, here on Berkeley Rocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. As you know, this is a very special edition, and as you probably are more than just aware of, there is a war in Iraq, and some of you have probably even expressed strong opinions about it. While the political issues behind this conflict are complicated and muddled in diplomatic language, the technological and strategic aspects can be described somewhat more objectively. Well, joining us live in the studio today to talk about these issues is Professor Richard Muller, Professor of Physics here at UC Berkeley. He's also a MacArthur Fellow. Uh, he teaches physics for future president and is a columnist for the MIT Tech Review. Uh, if you heard him recently, he was on the forum on KQED this past Monday. Professor Muller, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be back. Well, before we begin, uh, I just want to remind the listeners that this is a live show and that we are inviting the audience to join us. The number to call is 642-0993. Once again, 642-0993. Uh, area code 510 if you're not in the Bay Area. Um, so before we talk about the war itself, Professor Muller, could you uh, give us your impressions on the media coverage? Uh, what, are they, you know, what are they doing right? Uh, what are they leaving out that they should be reporting? Well, this is a fantastic new experiment in the media. Uh, it was go uh, that we were fighting in Afghanistan, and there was no media coverage, and that was uh, that was a change from what had happened previously. And now we're going to a saturation media coverage with with uh, reporters on the front lines, on the on the heads of the troops uh, barreling into Iraq. It, it's absolutely incredible what's going on. I think it's a wonderful thing. Everybody can see. Well, you don't see everything, of course. You, you, there are a few dozen reporters who are reporting back. They, they're giving live pictures, um, and we're getting a kind of information uh, that we have never seen before in any war. So I, this is this is just a, I think, a wonderful development because I, I'm one of these people who believes that 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 knowledge should be the basis of of, of opinion, and. Mm-hmm. This Hard is facts. giving us a kind of knowledge that we've never had. So, of course, it's a distorted knowledge, but it's less distorted than what we've had in the past. Right. What What would you say about their analysis of the situation? Well, I have a great deal of sympathy for people who are asked to commentate on to comment on uh, things that just happened and be wise about it. Uh, that, I have sympathy sympathy for these analysts that appear on CNN and ABC and CBS and NBC and who so often give a rather what I consider naive analysis of, of the events. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we're used to that. It, you just have to be very cautious. Uh, very hard to, just off the top of your head, analyze something you've just seen in such a way as to give deep insight. This whole issue of whether Saddam is there alive in his appearance on TV... Uh can you comment on that? Well, yeah, I think that's a good example um, because 
just last two nights ago, I stayed up late to watch um, to watch his live announcement that he was made making, and I, I listened to it very carefully. Um, a couple of, of of thoughts that I had on it. Uh, one was, it was obviously Saddam Hussein. People who think that you have to do a voice analysis or run a facial recognition program in order to determine if this is Saddam Hussein, I think are not familiar with the technology of voice analysis and facial recognition programs. The goal of these programs that we hope to reach sometime in the next few decades is to do as good a job as a human so it can be done automatically. The present program simply cannot beat a human looking at a picture and listening with his ears. Uh, it, to me, it was absolutely obvious that the speaker was Saddam Hussein, and, and sending it to the computer doesn't add much to that. Um, the other issue, of course, is whether Saddam Hussein was doing this uh, after the events mm-hmm. had taken place. And I listened very carefully to get any possible clue from those that the uh, tape had not been pre-recorded, and the absolute absence of such clues convinced me that this was not a tape that was done uh, after the attack on Saddam's sleeping quarters, but was a pre-recorded tape. We know Saddam makes those tapes. It's important to make those tapes, important to him. Uh, the, the the recent news conference, no, it wasn't a news conference. Uh, if it had been, I would have been impressed. The announcement that he made about Baghdad being surrounded and asking the people of Iraq to be patient and we are winning and in the South we have won some great battles and so on uh, struck me as obviously a pre-recorded tape. It was a tape that assumed Basra had been taken. It looked to me like the tape that was designed to uh, be broadcast in the last phase of the war when Saddam was evacuated from Baghdad and wanted to give the impression that he wasn't. So these discrepancies, they would imply that he is either dead or escaped, is that correct? Uh, I I think he's probably either dead or severely injured. Uh, Which brings us to the next question. Um, In your recent article in the Tech Review, you you talked about the Baghdad Express um, possibly using subway tunnels as escape routes. Uh, Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, tunneling is a technology that we in the U.S. are actually less familiar with than people in Europe, where it's a lot more crowded. Tunnels are uh, are very commonplace, even in in major cities. There are tunnel boring machines that can cut tunnels very quickly. We know that Saddam has deep underground bunkers. This technology is not hard. We, we know they're probably several hundred feet under underground. There was a uh, subway system that was designed for Moscow and officially was never built, mm-hmm. but many people think it was built. The, the UN for years has been hearing stories about this underground subway system, which was finished and then turned over for purely military purposes. It's a likely place for him to store many of his weapons of of mass destruction. It's possible that that's where the laboratory is for continuing development of nuclear weapons. And uh, recently, CBS News sort of broke this news. It wasn't wasn't new, but they had, uh, on on 60 Minutes a couple weeks ago, they had a, uh, a defector from Iraq who had 
hadn't hadn't firsthand knowledge of this, but he he knew people who had worked on the system. So it's it's uh, certainly possible, and I would say likely that there is an well, we know there is an underground tunnel complex in Baghdad. The only question is how big. I see. Um, so where's the proof for this? I mean, we have you know hearsay here and there. Uh, is there any conclusive proof we have, like satellite imagery or? Well, the major use of tunnels for the last uh, 20, 30 years in the military has been to hide things. We have no remote sensing that can find or look inside tunnels. Mm -hmm. Even when you're there on the ground, even if you're in Baghdad, there are, there's a lot, a lot of technologies that you might apply under more ideal situations. If you're out in the desert, there are things such as ground-penetrating radar. There are seismic methods that you can use. Uh, they're even using uh, electromagnetic waves from, from the atmosphere, uh, something called electromagnetic sounding that you can use. It doesn't work at all if you're in the middle of a city. Mm-hmm. If you're out in the middle of nowhere, sometimes you can detect the entrance uh, or exit, it's called an attic, of a tunnel uh, remotely by looking at the infrared radiation, the heat radiation that, that comes from it. And we have all sorts of sensors now, not just satellites, but also on unmanned air vehicles, the so-called drones, that can pick up this kind of radiation. This, um, I'm sure, was useful in Afghanistan, where these tunnels were out in the middle of nowhere. But in the clutter of a city, uh, these things just don't work. I see. Well, I guess time for a quick station ID. Uh, this is Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM KLX. Uh, once again, this is a live show, and it's a call-in, so uh, give us a ring here, 510-642-0993. Once again, 510-642-0993. Um, so with regard to this whole um, this fear of bioterrorism, um, do you, do you believe the uh, Iraqis have such weapons? You know, I believe that most people who oppose the war in Iraq believe that Saddam has such weapons. Mm-hmm. It's very, very hard to believe otherwise. Uh, in the mid-90s, he declared these weapons to the UN. Uh, among other things, he at that time had uh, had eight tons of anthrax, this is not a United States claim. This is not a George Bush claim. This is a declaration by Saddam Hussein. This is an official United Nations number. The number was disputed a little bit, but it settled down at about eight tons. Now think of what eight tons are. The total amount of anthrax that was spread through the mail in the United States uh, during the, the anthrax terrorism was probably a few grams. A ton is roughly a million grams. So he has four to eight million times as much of this material admitted, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in 1996. Now, subsequent to that, uh, he kicked out the inspectors in 1998. Basically, they found something they wanted to look at, and he said, no, this is private. You can't see it. And so they were kicked out. As a response, uh, Bill Clinton ordered the bombing of Iraq, took place in 1998, we bombed Iraq. People forget that Clinton did that. Without a resolution. Without a resolution, without even a, a approval from Congress. Um, and, and, and destroyed some facilities. But back then, Clinton could not take it the next step. I believe he really wanted to take it the next step, and he couldn't because of an uh, unfortunate affair that he got caught in. And 
a movie Wag the Dog came out, and, mm-hmm. and and it was it was just a time when it was politically impossible for him to go ahead and do what he felt had to be done. We now know that during the Clinton administration, he had multiple attempts to assassinate Saddam Hussein. Kenneth Pollack, who was his Iraqi expert on the National Security Council, recently wrote a book explaining all this. And so uh, that was what was happening under Clinton. The fact that things are happening under Bush, I think the main difference is September 11th. This put a scale on. It says, look, the U.S., we recognize now we are vulnerable. There are thousands of people who were killed. We have to do what's necessary, and if some soldiers die, let's go ahead and do it anyway. That changed the mood, and so Bush is able to do what Clinton wanted to do but couldn't. So the basic strategy approach would have been the same regardless who was president. It just depends on the... uh, No, I I think in the government it was known that this has to be done. And uh, Saddam is a unique danger. We can compare him to North Korea if you'd like. Uh, Some people say North Korea is more dangerous. It's potentially more dangerous. But as Mm -hmm. of today, the real danger comes from Iraq. It comes from Iraq because of the unique character of, of Saddam Hussein and his Ba'ath party, plus their enormous wealth. Uh, that combination is unique. Um, so some people link this whole war to the energy crisis, uh, our dependence on oil, and some people claim that we're just trying to grab more oil from the Middle East. Um, can you refute these claims or can you uh, confirm them? <laughs> well, you can deny the importance of oil. Oil has a, a key role in certainly the fact that it's what makes Saddam infinitely wealthy. He can he can spend more money. The money that he paid to build a nuclear weapon, uh, you could have bought ten times the weight in gem quality diamonds for the money that he spent. Uh, that enormous concentration of wealth in a person who has no regard, disregard, I mean, we're talking about someone here who enjoys torturing animals. Someone like that with that much wealth is what makes this such a dangerous situation. Um, The fact that the United States does have vital interests in that area is something that I don't think can be ignored. Certainly, uh, we're not the, the government isn't playing that up as as the reason for doing it. The whole war could be justified totally on human rights uh, grounds, uh, liberation of the of the people in Iraq. Um, the fact that that the U.S. will benefit by having, if the United States manages to truly liberate Iraq, if it manages to put in place a decent government. Mm-hmm. then Iraq will be our closest ally in the Middle East, in, in the Gulf region. So this is similar to what uh, the U.S. did to Japan after World War II? I hope so. Everybody hopes so. Uh, to me, the, the point of American history, the thing that makes me most proud to be an American, was the way we treated our World War II enemies, turning Japan and Germany not only into the wealthiest countries of of most of the Cold War, but into close the closest U.S. allies. I, th- I think that's a wonderful thing that we did, and I believe that the that that this is what Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice really want to do with Iraq. Needless to say, the French and the Russians are not that happy about having Iraq have as its closest ally the United States. But I don't think we should be ashamed of, of, of a goal of having Iraq be a close ally. 
Yes, there will be financial benefits from this. Mm-hmm. Yes, it will help stabilize the Middle East. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm, I try to be optimistic, but, you know, war is always horrible. And I can think of eight good, strong reasons not to go to war. I think only if you have good answers to every single one of those reasons would you should you even consider war. War has to be a last resort. In this case, I think it was necessary. Uh, well, speaking of, you know, uh, the horrors of war, um, how old do you think the U.S. is at, at um, preventing innocent civilians from dying in this in this conflict? Well, I don't like to draw a distinction between innocent civilians and Iraqi soldiers. I believe most Iraqi soldiers are innocent. They are people who were inducted into the army and forced to fight. And I, I think we're back in the 1800s to think about, uh, well, you can kill a soldier, but if you kill a child, you've done something horrible. I think all such killing is horrible. Um, even the Republican Guard, <clears throat> even these people that, that we denigrate as the fanatics of Saddam Hussein are fanatics, I believe, in large part because they've been given misinformation, because they've been trained about the evil of the United States in a way that is invalid. Uh, these, these, most of the Republican Guard, most of the Iraqi soldiers are good people. I think it's it's important for us to minimize the trauma to Iraq in this. But there are a lot of people in Iraq who are traumatized by Saddam Hussein. That is the measure. Um, we, the people talk about the thousands of children who have died there. Uh, this is what we're trying to put an end to. The difference between this war and previous wars that we're, we're acting preemptively, um, and some people say that we're not justified to do so, uh, but based on the based on the uh, the evidence that you know he probably has these weapons, do you do you feel that it's justified then? I, I, it's not a question in my mind of justification. I think we have to do it. I, I think the threat from Saddam for the future is is so horrifying that that this is something that was important to do. Uh, well, for the last ten years, and everybody had hoped that. When, when, when Saddam surrendered, basically surrendered, in 1991, the ceasefire was based on his uh, total acceptance of every UN resolution <clears throat> that had been passed. And, in fact, he did cooperate at that time. He what we learned about his weapons came not from technical detection of the weapons, but from interviews with his own scientists who had been working on these weapons. And that's why it was so important uh, with the, with resolution 1441 that we get access to the scientists again because that is how you find out about these things. Not by inspecting random buildings, not by remote sensing and U2 overflights, but by talking to these scientists. And that is something he adamantly refused to let us do. Talk to scientists, but only if they were tape recordings so that he could punish the families of the scientists if they said anything they weren't supposed to say. So we did not get that full cooperation. The, the war in Iraq, I mean, it's very similar. We could call this Iraqi War II or Gulf War II. Uh, World War II was really a continuation of World War One, mm-hmm. and this is really a continuation of World War of, of the Iraqi War One. Uh, there was never peace with Iraq. It was a ceasefire based on region. Uh, it's time for another uh, station ID. This is Berkeley Grox here on ninety point seven FM. 
Uh, for those of you interested in talking to Professor Moeller, you can call us here at 510-642-0993. Once again, 510-642-0993. Um, the issue of using chemical weapons during the war, um, Hans Blix had an interview said that he didn't think Iraq would actually use them as a matter of honor. Uh, do you, uh, can you speculate on that? Well, that that was a very curious comment from Hans Blix because he didn't say, "Well, there's no evidence they have them." Right. He he talked as if he believed they were there, and that they had them. But and it wasn't a matter of honor. What what he actually said was that he thought if it was used, they they wouldn't use them because it would bring in uh, support from all the other nations of the world. Well, I I don't think that's a, a reason for the Iraqi decision not to bring them. I think uh, if, if if Iraq now is afraid, is, is gets desperate, uh, I don't think they're going to decide not to new, use uh, chemical weapons because they're afraid that France is going to enter the war. Uh, well, let's turn the topic a little bit. Um, do you feel that this war will affect academic research uh, over the next few years? You know, there are really two cultures in the world today, and it's it's interesting when you watch interviews with soldiers, with generals, uh, to realize how separate that entire culture is from the academic world. That uh-huh. didn't used to be the case. There, there used to be a close connection between the two, and it was really si- split. It was cut off during the Vietnam War when uh, academics decided that being involved in, in war was, was, a, was, a, was a dirty thing. So um, it's remarkable how little uh, relationship exists now between the academics and, and, and the military. Uh, there'll probably be very little effect on academia. Uh, um, but in terms of, say, the type of research that will get funded, do you believe it would be more with regard to, say... Um uh, preventing or, um, um, you know, safeguarding our, ourselves from bioterrorism? There's, there's, there's very little research done on campus on those issues. Most of the research having to do with uh, military issues are, are now done by uh, by private industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The funding that the the, the uh, scientists get is from the National Science Foundation. It doesn't have any any such funding. Of course, there's a great deal of interest in in biomedical aspects of, of disease and so on. But uh, I'm not expecting there will be any significant change uh, in the in the foreseeable future uh, on research on campus. Okay. Well, we have a caller here, um, Thomas. Welcome to Berkeley Grox. Thank you. Uh- Professor, I've been uh, sitting here um, growing more and more agitated and trying to uh, keep my cool, um, so to speak. Um, You are, with all due respect, either one of the most naive politically or um, outright misinformed that I've I've ever heard in my life. This is is horrifying. Um, This war is about oil. You haven't once spoken about the disintegration of international law, the precedent that this sets. 
you haven't talked about, well, Saddam Hussein is undeniably a monster and has to be dealt with. Uh, you haven't talked about um, alternatives uh, in your sort of clownish support for the Bush administration's rush to war. Um, I don't know that this is a question. Um, you... I'm speechless. Okay. Well, uh, it, it didn't really sound like like a, like a question to me, but you know, my 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 feeling is that I the reason I respect your point of view is that I believe that one should have a very high threshold before one even can. I think war is a horrible thing. War is evil. The United States is now engaged in an evil act. And, and in that sense, I, I really respect what you're saying. When you the threshold that you just mentioned here? Excuse me? Would you care to analyze the threshold? That yes. Yeah, I'll, 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 be happy. I'll be happy to do that because as, as I look at this, uh, I can think of about six or eight good reasons to abhor what the United States is doing. And unless answers to every one of those eight reasons, and they have to be very good answers, then your conclusion is the right one. Now... You, you kind of covered six of the eight <laughs> right right there and 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 we can go through these one at a time uh, of course of course a lot of these things are judgment there are there are there are people and I don't include you among these who would simply say I don't care what George Bush does I don't trust that man I don't care what kind of cabinet he has he does is bad that I can't really answer I, could, I mean I could say I well, there are a lot of people who, who, who trust Colin Powell. Well, trust. You listen to him. You listen to the arguments he makes and then see whether they make sense. There are people who say, well, this is everything in the U.S. government is driven simply by our desire for wealth, and we are going to war simply because... If we wanted to go to war for oil, it would be a lot easier to take over Saudi Arabia or to take over Venezuela. Um, yeah, I, and... Oil is certainly important here. Um, when I was a student, the issue was the Vietnam War. And I protested the Vietnam War. I thought that was a bad thing for the U.S. government to do at that time. Um, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt here. I guess we're running a little bit out of time. so we well, Let me just finish up real quickly okay. then. Uh, let me just say the fact that the U.S. does have vital interests in that area, in the, in the Middle East, doesn't necessarily mean that, therefore, we're doing it for, for a bad reason. Thank you, Thomas. Uh, we have another caller here, Nicole. Welcome to Berkeley Grox. Uh, just one second here, Nicole. We're going to hook you up into the line. Hi. Yes. Hi. Hi. What's your question? Thanks so much. Um, uh, well, first of all, before I uh, give my question, I would like to say that the professor should definitely go into politics because he's well suited for it. Number two, uh, Hans Blix in his mem—not uh, Hans Blix. I'm sorry, Richard Butler in his mem memoirs stated very specifically that uh, the reason he pulled, uh, they pulled out of uh, Iraq in 1998 was because Clinton was going to bomb, and it had nothing to do with Saddam Hussein kicking them out. Now that that you know that's that's written down in his latest memoirs. I don't that's no, a direct contradiction to what what the professor said. So I just wondered, uh, am I wrong? Yeah, I, I think you're wrong. I read those memoirs. You're, you're, you're talking about. Richard Butler's uh, book on this era, which I have read too, and uh, and I, I 
maybe we read two different books, but in my, my book, uh, he, he was basically denied uh, access to the places he wanted to go. He was told that there would be no more access. He wasn't told he had to leave the country. He was just told that simply they would no, the Iraqis would no longer cooperate. Right, he left the country. At that point, there was a well, discussion he, of whether he should he, go why back Why did he in. leave the country? What's that? He left the country because he was told he, he couldn't look at this one. one That's right. He, he left the country because, they were, because he was told... Actually, he won a $5 bet over this, if you remember. Uh, he, he bet that he was going to be kicked out of the country. He bet this with one of his colleagues. He reports this in his memoirs, the ones you're referring to. The next day, he, they were told that there would no, be no longer cooperation. There was no mention of bombing from the U.S. at this point. At that point, he accepted the $5. He still has the $5. He carries it with him, signed by the person he bet with, that he was kicked out. He came back to the U.S. then to report to the United Nations what was going to happen. Then the United States decided, without UN approval, to go ahead and do the bombing. But it was not out of fear of the bombing that he came. I suggest you reread those chapters. Well, thank you for clearing that up. Okay. Well, uh, thanks a lot, Nicole. Um, yeah. Professor Muller, I guess we are out of time. Would you like to add any last few second comments? Um, I think people who oppose the war are showing really good instincts. And and I think it's the right instinct to show. But there's a lot to be read on this subject. There's a great deal of information you should get. Read the book by Butler. Read Kenneth Pollock's wonderful book. He was a Clinton administration expert. His book, The, the, the Threatening Storm, will give you the background that you need to, to refine your opinions on what we should be doing. Thanks a lot, Professor Muller. Uh, we were just talking to Professor Richard Muller here on Berkeley Grox. He is the physics professor here at UC Berkeley and a columnist for the Tech Review. And that is all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.